Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert, and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of harvesting nature. Hey guys, this is the Harvesting Nature Wild Fish and Game podcast. I got you here with Justin and Dustin. Uh, we're filming our second episode here, and today we're going to talk a little bit about curing wild meats and fish, and get into the science into it, and discuss some cool recipes that we've had, and just see where that takes us. Uh, I just want to thank all the new listeners that we had from our last episode, our very first pilot episode, and hope that it was special for you, because it was definitely special for us, so having all of you listen in is uh, pretty cool. saw the numbers rise throughout the week as it hit all the different areas that it was distributed to and as each one got accepted more and more people were listening in and and I hope that you're enjoying the content that we're putting forward. So just to give you a quick rundown, uh, my name is Justin Townsend, the editor-in-chief at Harvesting Nature. Uh, You'll see mostly on the website like a lot of the wild cooking done by me uh, these days. We've had a a large group of individuals contribute recipes in over the past. Uh, We'll continue to just push forward and with that, we founded the podcast uh, back a couple weeks ago, launched our first episode, so we're continuing to push forward with the technical side of cooking. Hello, my name is Dustin. I'm uh, one of the contributing authors to this, and uh, I'm going to be talking today about curing meats. Um, so that is something that goes back uh, pretty much to the dawn of time. It started off as a necessity. You needed to preserve meat and make it last longer, and uh, you wanted to stop, the, slow down the spoilage and uh, avoid the, the spread of uh, microorganisms and bacteria. So there's there's different types of curing when it comes to meat. 
You have uh, salting, brining, aging, drying. Even canning and, and preser- preserving is considered a cure of sorts. Um, my, my favorite type is uh, dry curing uh, with a dehydrator, adding some pink salt and uh, making like a, like a jerky or curing a ham um, when it comes to things like that, summer sausages. That's, that's probably my most common use of a cure. Salt is one of the key ingredients with curing, and we, we discussed salt and its relation to the meat a little bit last episode when we were discussing brining and i think i mentioned just a general term science is kind of the reason why and i wanted to go a little bit more in depth with it uh for this episode and basically salt as that key ingredient is really important and the way that it works is the bacteria and mold which get into your meat they need water in order to survive And one thing about salt is that salt deprives them of water through a process called osmosis. I won't get into the in-depth of what osmosis is, but trust the process. So basically, when you introduce a large amount of salt to the meat, the cells of the meat are surrounded by sodium and chloride, which are the two ingredients in salt, in common table salt, sea salt, as you think of it that way, most common ways. So through that osmosis process... The water flows out of the microbes, which are your mold and bacteria and those little nasty bits that are hiding inside areas of the meat or introduced to the meat over time as they begin to turn rancid. And as the water goes out, the salt goes in. And the salt basically just kills them. Or if it doesn't kill them completely, it slows their growth to a much slower method that it doesn't allow us to ingest it and get sick by it. So salt also has some other positive effects to the meat itself and we talked definitely a lot about that with the brining. So it denatures and weakens the muscle fiber which result in more delicious and more tendered meat. So as you cure meats and you introduce those salts in, you're not only killing the bacteria but you're also softening the tissue of the meat. That's why When you think things like cured sausage and stuff like that, it doesn't really matter what specific cuts they're made out of because you're going to end up breaking that uh, muscle down into something that's really good and consumable, which is what we're looking for. So it's not a big, tough chunk of sausage. It's pretty soft. And I mean, a common thing to think is like when you get prosciutto and you slice it and it's super thin and it just kind of melts. So... With that, you're changing the characteristics of the meat itself. So really common in curing, in addition to salt, is nitrate or nitrites. Uh, And they provide some additional qualities to the cured meats. Um, There's a lot of debate surrounding the fact whether nitrates and nitrites are good for you, cancer-causing, not cancer-causing. Regardless, they're one of the leading killers in uh, botulism, which is not good. Because you tend to die from that uh, if go if um, untreated. So, uh, in order to avoid botulism, I would probably choose the the nitrate option over. I would that. definitely choose that over botulism. Absolutely. So, some things you're going to see from nitrates are improved color. So that's where you're getting your pink meats. The most common thing to think of probably is like corned beef. So how it gets that pink color. So that's coming from the nitrates. So it also kills bacteria, as I mentioned. One of the big targeters that it does is uh, botulism, so it knocks that out. And it has its own like unique flavor and uh, tangy bit, I guess you could call it, that is something enjoyable to 
uh, definitely a wide array of people. And it also, they further break down the meat. So they do some other chemical uh, reaction within the meat itself with the protein strains and all that that allow for further breakdown to make the meat more tender. Going in a little further down this process, Dustin talked a lot about the different types. So you obviously have uh, a, within curing itself is the method of brining. And so that method of brining itself, you're following almost the same practices as we discussed in the last episode where you're letting the meat set but we focus more on short-term cooking in order to tenderize and as I previously said curing is going beyond that because you're looking at the preservation of the meat so when you're putting meats in those brines you are essentially taking them and allowing that meat to sit in there longer so instead of hours you're looking at days and we'll talk a little bit more about a specific recipe we have with some corn venison that touches on um, some time based on pounds of meat and all that other stuff. Um, looking at some other things, canning, as Dustin mentioned, is a good form of preservation. And that you're, you're cooking the meats inside the can and then sealing it off from any bacteria or any oxygen or air getting into it, which could introduce new bacteria. So that's a very traditional method that goes back a while uh, into that. Another really common within is is jerky, so drying your meat. Right. And then let me say back on that with with the curing. So it's especially important when it comes to wild game because most of this meat is harvested in the field and it's not a sterile sanitary condition. A lot of times you're, you're packing meat in whatever bags you can and you're exposing that meat to uh, a, a larger environment for bacteria. So it's important to remember this when you're going through the curing process, that that's why these nitrates are, are, are important. But back to jerky. So I haven't met anyone who doesn't like jerky. And so that, that's one of the favorite ways. And there's, there's different ways to do it. Um, not everyone can go out and get a, you know, a nice fancy dehydrator. Uh, they're starting to come down pretty much in price. You can get a, a really affordable, like four rack countertop one. The way I start off with jerky is, um, I used to do it in the oven when I didn't have any, any fancy materials, uh, drop it down your oven down about, 160 or, or its lowest setting, crack the door open to keep the moisture out and let it go as long as it takes to get dry. Um, shut the door at the end, cook it for about an hour at the end to uh, kill any chance of bacteria and your jerk is good to go. Now for short term, if you're just going to make make a snack, uh, curing isn't necessarily uh, required, the, the pink curing salt. Uh, however, you, you want it to be um, stored on the shelf for quite a long time. So you're, you're going to want to add that cure to it to uh, to decrease the chances of bacteria and therefore botulism. Now, what you can do is preparing it. So some people want to flavor their meat, marinate their meat. Um, some people like strips. Some people like it ground. Now, the difference between strips and, and ground, some people love the, the chewy big piece that they can take big old chunks off of, cut it thin, lay it on there, dehydrate it, and you have one big piece of jerky. Some people are, are very critical about grinding it up and using a jerky gun. Uh, I haven't ha had a problem with that. I actually like the jerky gun because I can get more flavor throughout. I can add green chilies to mine. I can add uh, whatever spices I, I like. I can put it all through the grinder and it comes out the same all around. And the flavors within as well. If I want to add a little bit of tiny bit of fat to it, if it's uh, too lean, I can do that as well. And that'll, that'll change the texture of the, the bite as well. If it's super lean, like, like venison, that's going to be straight to the point. Dries can be have a little bit of fat in it. Uh, let's say you process it with some fat, it's going to um, be a little bit chewier at its driest point. With that jerky gun, you can you can use a KitchenAid or any kind of food processor 
you blend it up, and then you put it on your drying rack and uh, let it set overnight. Set it and forget it. In the morning, it should be dry. And then even even if you use a dehydrator, you're always going to want to top it off in the oven about 160 or it's low setting for about an hour just to kill off anything that's bad for you. Yep, you just want to bring the internal temp of the meat up to 160, 165. That's either you could do it before or after the dehydrating process or the drying process. So it's pretty key. Um, also looking at, so to segue into that, looking at some smoking, uh, smoking meat. So following sort of the same practice, you can also prepare your jerky in the smoker. So that means you're taking it out, you're bringing it to that 165 temperature, and then you may be lowering it to a smoke setting and setting in the smoker for duration to dry further and create that jerky-like appeal. So one important thing about smoking is that so you're adding chemicals into the surface from the smoke, so not necessarily chemicals in a bad sense, but just chemicals as in it's a part of nature coming in and adding that to the surface of the meat, uh, which will affect the ability of the bacteria to grow on the surface and inhibit oxidation. Oxidation is important because that leads to rancicity, which we mentioned earlier is just a, a fancy term for the meat going bad. So once you introduce that smoke at those outside layers, this allows you, gives you like a little extended time on that time clock. But most smoked meats still require to be either frozen or canned. So after you freeze them, they may last longer. You may keep that rancicity from introducing itself into your meat, but ultimately you're still going to have to freeze that or can it or another way of further preserving it in order to prolong the time. A real good example is that I made... Uh, a good batch of innocent jerky right before I left to go on a hunting trip a couple months ago into Wyoming and I prepared two methods and we actually prepared an article on this which we haven't released yet but we will in the near future comparing dehydrated uh, versus beef jerky on the smoker and so I used the same exact recipe but just different preparation methods and I found when you throw it on the dehydrator the dehydrator ran overnight with the smoker running less amount of time because it needed less time before the meat was more uh, done, it wasn't as dried, so it was more chewy, but the dried meat lasted longer. So after like a week or so, uh, and sealed bags, once we started unsealing it, eating it, sealing it back up, introducing those outside environmental factors in, I started seeing uh, mold growth on the meat that was smoked. So that got tossed, and we continued to eat the dried, which showed no signs of it. So there's kind of an interesting indirect science experiment that we conducted sort of following up with the, the smoking is curing methodology and just thinking about like, hey, just because it's smoked, just because it's dehydrated doesn't mean it's not going to go bad. You're just trying to find a way to prolong the life of your harvest. So leading into smoking, Dustin, you may know I have a trigger. Uh, you've had some foods off of the Traeger. It's pretty good. So I've had it now for about two years, and I use it for pretty much everything. For Thanksgiving, Christmas, every year I cook turkeys, I cook ducks, I do hams. I've used my Traeger for different cooking events. I've used it at the restaurant I used to work at, and even desserts. Which is surprising. Who knew you could smoke desserts? Yeah, there you go. It's a thing. Really, for me, it's just a solid piece of equipment in my kitchen arsenal. 
And I just recently upgraded to the 780, which is larger than my old Traeger. And it also has some new technology that I really enjoy. It's very futuristic, so I feel kind of high-tech. Have Bluetooth? Uh, it's the Wi-Fi, actually. And it's called Wi-Fi technology. So I like it because I like to do different projects around the house while I am uh, have meat on the smoker. So I don't have to just stand there and watch it. With the Wi-Fi technology, you just connect it via Wi-Fi to the grill, and you can control the temperature settings, you can set reminders, you can get notifications, all while I'm sort of like working on that honey-do list that's ever grilled. Yeah, if we can get those things to flip the meat at uh, certain intervals too, then you just set it and come back whenever it's done. A couple other items that always impress me about Traeger is that their customer support's like super helpful. When I first got my initial Traeger, I had some questions as I was setting it up through the operation. I was like, wait a minute, this makes me feel really silly. But I called up their customer service department, which is super helpful, and they walked me through every step, answered all my questions, didn't leave me uh, on the phone, just hanging there. And you know, once I was completely satisfied and content, they hopped off the phone with me, and all was good. The other thing is that I really like how they have a variety of pellets. Uh, here at our local hardware store in Key West, uh, they carry probably eight different varieties of the pellets, so different wood varieties that are used to uh, smoke the meat within the Traeger itself. And it's really a great option to me because I like to take the different types of wood and pair with different meats to see like the complexity and flavor profiles and things like that. What's your favorite combination so far? Uh, I do like the cherry a lot. I think cherries pairs really well with uh, venison, so it just gets kind of a nice like fruity flavor from the wood uh, into the meat itself, which is really good. The other really cool thing is that I think those pellets are pretty hardy, so you know everything here in the Florida Keys has to deal with salt and humidity, and they break down, they rust, they disintegrate, they do whatever. So these pellets, they pretty stay pretty strong, they burn pretty well. Uh, despite being, you know, stored outside the majority of the time, either in the Traeger itself or in a five-gallon sealed bucket. So they aren't introduced to the environment, but they don't break down, whereas you'd think like, hey, there's a lot of moisture in the air because the humidity is like 95%. The, uh, the pellets stay pretty strong. It definitely makes me a happy guy using the Traeger. I continue to be a huge fan of it, so just wanted to share that with you guys here. Now as we sort of dive into some recipes that we've been preparing here recently, starting off with the first one and then a few after that, we're going to touch base on some of our our more uh, ladder, I guess you could say, recipes and just sort of rope in some curing methods that we've used that you can find the recipes for on our website at harvestinature.com to find these recipes. And I'll go ahead and let Dustin lead it off with the uh, most recent Christmas wild hog ham. One of my favorite uh, foods for the holidays is uh, ham. Now, if you remember on the first podcast, I said I don't really like adding a lot of flavors and spices. I really enjoy the flavor of the meat. This is one of those exceptions where I, I like to really give it some uh, taste. Why is it you like to give it taste and flavor? It's a uh, you know what I like is a it's a, a I like sweet ham. I like I like sweet ham. Um, I I don't mind eating ham plain like for slices slices but that's not my favorite when it comes to pork i mean i like prosciutto i like things like that uh, ham is always my last go-to i'll hit the turkey before i go to just a, a 
plain Jane ham, especially store bought. I'm the opposite. Are you? I will hit the ham before the turkey any day because I am not a big turkey fan. And if I do eat turkey, it's usually like the dark meat, so I don't care much for the just the well, I don't know the white meat. It bothers. I, me. I like my my ham warm, right? So if, whether it's added to to you know bacon and beans, whether it's it's cooked in the holidays, and I think that's where it came from. I like it warm, and it's always warm around the holidays when you, when you cut into that cooked ham. Um, plus, it's been basted with you know all these flavors, and so that's that's why I prefer that. Um, with this, we're going to be using uh, wild boar. Uh, there now there's fresh or cured. Um, if you if you don't have access to a wild boar, if you if you only have a cured ham, this recipe can use be used both for store bought or uh, wild harvested ham. Or if you want to cure it yourself. Or yeah, or if you want to yeah. cure it yourself. So we're we're looking at doing that maybe in the next couple of weeks. Got another ham. We're looking at maybe trying it on the Traeger too. I don't know more to come. I'm excited. Yeah. So uh, with this, um, I started with a uh, this round a four pound ham the, the recipe that we posted online uh, so you can you can change it up as you see fit uh, it's a modified approach to like a, a southern ham uh, if, if you've ever heard of the recipes involving root beer um, so that's what we did I, I like to I mean this is really a sweet ham when you take that that outer bite um, and so we use cream soda that's that's the the main thing is we swap out the root beer we use cream soda dark brown sugar right so you already see where this is going yeah it's a lot of sweet it's pretty sweet, and uh, add a little bit of agave and some maple syrup. Even more sweet. Rice getting sweeter, right? But but what is a holiday ham without clove, right? So so you still have to have the clove, but how do you balance that that clove with all the sweetness? A little bit of anise in there um, helps tie it all together. Now uh, you can, if you choose to do, do the whole cinnamon stick and, and orange and, and you know is that for the zest and all that. You can do that as well. That's not, that was never really my favorite part. Um, I just love that sweetness. And you take this ham. And what you're going to want to do is while, while you're cooking it, you're going to cut like a crisscross pattern across the top. Not too deep, though, just enough to kind of... How deep would you say? I'd say quarter inch. Quarter inch? Yeah. So just score it. Yeah, you're just basically scoring it. And um, you're taking this glaze that you have that uh, if you look at the the uh, procedures, the, the recipe, you'll see how to, how to melt it all down and, and get it done. And you're going to just slow, slow and steady. Cook that thing as long as possible, as slow and low as you can. Smoke it, fine. Take this. Um, once, once you have that glaze, you're just going to keep applying it to the top and let it kind of soak in. It'll fall around the outside. The, the, the smell is in it. You know, the, the taste is in it. It's just mouth-watering by the time you're done. And when you cut into it, you're going to have that, you're going to have that pure, boar meat taste in the middle but as you get out towards the outside it's just going to have that sweetness and it really ties together surprisingly well i believe it my only question is and i know you've done this a couple times because we've talked about it over the past couple weeks but the amount of sugar in the recipe do you experience it like burning is it possible say someone leaves it in too long or raises the temperature higher than they're supposed to that it's going to start to burn all that sugar and you're going to get like a a crispy char on it. it. It can. It can get kind of sticky. Okay. You know, yeah, you definitely want to pay attention to it and make sure you're not putting too much on it and, and leaving it in one spot. Um, but it, when you go nice and slow, it also kind of, it's not like a candy shell, but you know what I mean? It's a, it's it's a like really sticky, it's a sticky yeah, it's glaze. Like a, it's a glaze. So you're putting a glaze on it. So the first step being like you're adding in all your spices and stuff after you score it. So that's letting them penetrate into the meat a little bit. And then after that, you're glazing. And just as we discussed in the last episode, with the glaze, with the marinade, you're not looking at 
is still going to have the flavor of the pork, but the outside is where you're going to get like the special treat. It's like a glazed donut, but of pork. <laughs> I'd like to hear, you know, if anyone uh, tries this recipe for the first time for the holidays and, and, you know, got feedback, let me know. I'd like to hear it. And with the holidays just around the corner, I think it's a perfect opportunity to do that, especially if you have a wild boar. It's funny because looking at the, the photos and stuff, so we posted a photo of the boar that you harvested and used this recipe for, and there was a lot of debate about the size. I didn't tell you this, but there's a lot of debate about the size and the poundage, which is why I was asking. I was like, hey, man, how much does that thing weigh? So, and one guy was even like, oh, man, he's from the Northeast, and he was, he said, oh, it absolutely terrifies me, the fact that those things are just like walking around the woods. Uh, he goes, but it looks pretty tasty. So, a lot of support there. By far the ugliest, scariest looking hog I've ever shot. It's pretty big. Pretty big tusk. If you have a chance, go check out our Instagram page. Uh, you can see the boar with Dustin there holding his rifle, all cheesy, looking good. Very proud moment, though. It's cool. Is that Was that your first South Florida hog? No, no. That was about my uh, fourth. Fourth? Okay, cool. Do they taste different than Oklahoma hogs? No. 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 Not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They all they all forge the same. And... You ready? Showtime on May third. Summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. So my uncle, uh, I'm from Oklahoma originally, those who don't know. So my uncle is raises pigs in Oklahoma. And absolutely will not touch wild pigs. He says they're the most disgusting thing ever. And ah, oh, oh, back to our conversation about brining. You know, that's one thing I do when I when I get wild hog. It's it's a tougher meat. Um, definitely going to make sure I brine it before I uh, start the process for food. So moving into the next recipe, I want to talk about tuna grab locks. So we talk a lot about meat, but we never really go dive into the fishing realm as much. I say we talk a lot. This is our second episode, so we haven't talked that much about meat, but we've had the opportunity to. Tuna grab locks, the first time I ever saw this was my first restaurant I worked at in New Orleans called Bryston's, and one of the appetizers, seasonal appetizer there that uh, Chef Frank Bryson does is a tuna grab locks. And so that's basically just cured tuna, and you cure it using salt, surprisingly, and sugar on the outside, and you just let it set. So this is dry curing versus we discussed earlier brining. So now we're going back to uh, dry curing. So we're going to let it set in salt for a period of time that that salt can battle the bacteria Let's call it a battle. That sounds pretty neat. That it has a chance to battle the bacteria and sort of win over that. So tuna is one that you can do as well as salmon, which salmon I think would be pretty good in a grab locks because it's also too thin. You're cutting it sort of like sashimi. So if you were to go to the store, though, and you wanted to use one of these fishes, you'd want to get sushi grade because of the handling. There's a lot of in-depth discussion about that. Curing fish is not far-fetched. Uh, I would do your research, though. There's definitely a lot of fish out there that carry a lot of weird parasites and bacteria that may or may not be killed during the, the curing process. So 
I don't know about you. I don't often like to experiment too, too much. I'll live outside the box when it comes to eating food, but sometimes when I know for sure that there's a definite risk to a gamble, I may or may not go that way. Come back on another recipe that we have on uh, the website is probably one of our most popular at the time, and this repaired back a couple years ago. I made it uh, in lieu of St. Patty's Day, and the whole recipe altogether was a venison Reuben sandwich. So, what's the key ingredient to Reuben sandwiches? Corned, corned beef. beef. So, in this case, we're using corned venison. Came up with this sweet corned, which is a way of brining. And the term corn comes from not adding corn to it, but the corn-sized salt pellets that used to be used in the corning process. The whole process, corn venison corning process takes about four to five days so be sure to plan ahead when you're preparing this dish you know especially if you're doing it for a special occasion you're gonna have a group of friends over or whatever you want to make sure that you're leaving enough time to fully corn slash brine uh, whatever item you are cooking so the roast that we used for this recipe was about six pounds and i think it took me about five days you're looking at roughly a pound a day, maybe a little less. Uh, I left it in there a little less. I used about a half gallon of water, and what I used for this was Morton's Tender Quick, so that's pretty readily available. If you go to your local butcher shop, may have it. Grocery stores may have it. If not, I definitely know you can order it on like Amazon. And then we went into the actual spices, so brown sugar, mustard seeds, bay leaves, cinnamon stick, allspice, all those fun, nice spices that that stuff's going to sit in. Uh, really, you're going to heat the stuff up, add in all your, heat the water up, add in all your ingredients, and the key factor is just like with brining and everything else, you want to make sure that you fully cool the um, water, because if not, you're going to be throwing a piece of meat that's not equivalent to the temperature of the water, and even if you leave it over there times it's going to do a certain amount of cooking to it and you want to avoid that that way you're completely in control of the cooking process so after it soaks in that water for that four to five days we removed it took it out the water gave it a good rinse and uh tossed the brine and washed it washed it washed it really really well and if you're not really a fan of salt, you can even boil the meat before you bake it. So then we took it. I didn't boil it. Um, I don't mind the salt flavor. And those that tried it didn't really find a heavy salt flavor to it. So we just threw it straight in the oven. Some people, if you're really sensitive to salt or you don't enjoy that flavor, you could boil it for a little while, for about two to three minutes, remove the meat, discard the water, rinse it again, and then put it in the oven. That's going to leach out some of that salt that may be in there. You could also put it into, or I guess technically, I was thinking about this. You could put it back into water overnight, but that may or may not defeat the fact that you're curing it to remove water and to kill bacteria to begin with. So now you're kind of like, yeah, you're, you're chasing yourself in this tail. So my recommendation, as I sit here and talk through this, 
um, and deviate from the own recipe that I wrote is that you probably want to stick to just pulling it from the brine, washing it, not soaking it again, and then just either boiling it or baking it. I used a Dutch oven, big fan of Dutch oven, about three to four hours is pretty good. And then you want to slice it against the grain at whatever thickness that you choose. So another cool ingredient that we did for this recipe was that we made sauerkraut, homemade sauerkraut. Have you ever made homemade sauerkraut? Uh-huh. It's another form of curing. <laughs> we'll hit that word a lot in this episode. If we haven't already said it, probably about a dozen times. So I used one head of cabbage and about a half a tea, uh, one and a half teaspoons of kosher salt, and then coriander, and then a one pint mason jar. This is fermentation, not necessarily curing, so it's slightly different because well, you're gonna, canning, yeah. Yeah, and you're not sealing it off, but you want to make sure all your equipment's still equally clean because you don't want to introduce any foreign bacteria. I removed the leaves from the outside of the cabbage, sliced it all up, and then you're actually just gonna take the salt and pour it directly onto the cabbage, and you're gonna massage it. And what you're gonna find is is that cabbage will start to shed juice water because of the salt because you're massaging the salt and what do we salt extracts moisture injects itself into it so then you're going to take some of that you're going to take jars the sliced cabbage now that's turned into this pulpy juicy bowl of sauerkraut and you're going to put it into a jar and you're going to top it all the way off with the juice which includes the salt and the coriander into this jar and cover it with a cloth and place in a location that will not receive direct sun. And you want to check and make sure that your cabbage is submerged completely for the next couple days. And so it's going to ferment as it sits in there. And then on the third day, you're going to taste it. So be sure, I don't know, we have this thing at my house where we don't use metal spoons and things that are fermented. Uh, it's I don't know the science behind it. It's just a thing at my house, so we always use a plastic spoon. Maybe it has to do with not being fully washed. You take the risk. I don't know. Not that I don't clean my dishes at my house because we do, but introducing something new into something old. So, Well, let me think real quick. Yes. Now, if I remember correctly, with fermentation versus canning, if I, if I can something, I could throw it in the cupboard. As long, you, know, you still want to keep everything out of your direct sunlight, fine. But I can, I can leave those cans on a shelf for a long time. When it comes to fermentation, in certain climates, shouldn't it be somewhat refrigerated? At a point, you're going to want to refrigerate it, period. Like once you want to slow or stop the fermentation process, you're going to refrigerate it. Okay, yes. okay. So it also depends on what you're fermenting and what you're making. Each one kind of has different steps. I know that for cabbage, uh, we typically let it set for like three days. Even my wife makes fermented vegetables and stuff like that. But the big inclusion is is that making sure that your vegetables are sitting below that top of that liquid. Because once you're exposing them to air, just like we talked before, you're exposing them to new bacteria. So as long as they're staying below that, you have enough salt and other ingredients in the water that you're preventing the bacteria from penetrating into it you're sort of controlling what's going on inside that liquid right and for our listeners um, if anyone's ever thought about this but they think it's, it's too difficult it's actually not there's kits for fermenting and canning on amazon starting in the like 30 dollars range and uh, easy first time never done it before jump right into it mixing those two together the corn venison and the homemade sauerkraut 
And instead of your normal like Thousand Island dressing, I used a cool uh, Irish maple mustard dressing. So you can check that out. Maple. Yeah, more maple. If you want to dive further into the world of Rubens on the Harvest of Nature website, you can find that. and It'll be in the show notes as well today. Garlic whiskey wild boar bacon. This was actually a recipe uh, from one of our field staff writers who actually just released a new cookbook this year, and I believe it was recently named one of the top 10 cookbooks of the year. It's called Lavash. If you see it on the shelves, grab it. It's uh, Armenian food, and he's excellent chef. You'll see a lot of his stuff on our Harvest in Nature website, but he takes us through in this recipe sort of the steps to making wild boar bacon, which is pretty awesome. So he's using curing salt and kosher salt, whiskey, garlic powder, brown sugar, all those great things that everybody loves. Brown sugar and pork, I'm telling you. So he's essentially just using sort of a brine, not quite a dry brine, not like a fully submerged wet brine, but placing the wash and clean pork belly inside of a Ziploc bag and putting it in the fridge to keep it nice and cool to cure it for seven days. And each day is going through and he's flipping it so that you're getting an equal distribution of your curing agents onto both sides of the meat. And then from there, he used a smoker. Uh, bring your smoker to about 180 degrees. So if you're using the Traeger, that's your smoke setting. And um, and he's throwing the belly on there until it reaches a internal temperature of about 150 degrees. So if you don't have a smoker, though, uh, there's another option where you can use your oven to heat it up about 200 degrees because most ovens won't drop down super low so you find that like, yeah 170 is my lowest setting yeah and even like the warm setting that you'll see in some ovens it's really variable and you can't always get a good consistent temperature on there because it's it's really just a warm setting but putting it 200 degrees and then really kind of closely monitoring the meat so once that internal temp comes up to 150 just the same then you let it cool down and slice it after it's set in the refrigerator, because that fat's going to kind of bond back together, harden up, and it'll make it easier to slice. And then from there, you can you can even freeze it if you wanted to slice it, in theory. Freeze it for a little bit, so maybe not a full like overnight where it's hard, thick as rock, but par-freeze it. And then that would allow you to slice it nice, nice and well, too, and just kind of keeping everything cool, keeping your knives cool, keeping your meat cool. Plus, it's so much easier to cut cold meat. Oh, yeah. Like it will, coming back from... Uh you know, a hunt and you have it sitting on ice for that, that time, it's so much easier to control and cut. Absolutely. I mean, even if you take it to the processor or anything, they generally will cure it like 24 hours just to let it get a good, hard, like, not a freeze, but uh, get cold enough that they can easily work with it. And, I mean, here in Florida, we don't always have that opportunity. <laughs> and moving forward, we're about to take a trip up to the Everglades to go do some hunting here in the next couple of weeks. And, um, interesting to see how the heat is going to play into uh, our hunt there. We've I've been in some situations where you're looking at like you can't leave meat out for long. Like you want to get it stripped, you want to get it packed, you want to get it in the cooler as quickly as possible. And then I've it's been on the opposite side too. We're like, oh, it's 15 degrees outside. Just hang it in a tree. Yeah, we can leave it setting and we'll come back and address it later. So it's really just kind of open to your environment when you start playing with those factors. 
But I think really that wraps it up, kind of hitting on some of the recipes we want to talk about. I really wanted to loop in some of the discussion of curing meats from just the science and the processes and everything to sort of tie in and show you some good solid examples of some ways to cure some wild game. I mean, it's definitely not, it's not impossible to do by no means. You'll see a lot of it around the world, different people curing different things. I mean, it's, it's a method that's probably as old as the first hunter harvesting something of like, holy smokes, we can't eat this whole woolly mammoth. How are we going to preserve its meat so that we can eat it later? Well, yes, let's go around. So Dustin, do you have any last notes? Uh, no, I, I would just say that, uh, now, you know, with the holidays coming around, it is a food holiday. Uh, enjoy your food. Uh, try different things. Don't be don't be afraid to cure for the first time. Don't be afraid to brine for the first time. Don't be afraid to ferment for the first time. And that's how you get into this. Uh, so enjoy. Uh, if you try any of these recipes, please give us your feedback. Tell us what you like. Thanks for listening. Uh, again, with the podcast, tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. We welcome your feedback. So I think really... My last note is one, first off, I'm really excited that we're going to give another go at the, not another go, we're going to cook it for the first time for when I'm around to eat the wild hog ham. So pretty excited about that because as I was reading through the recipe and everything uh, right before it was published and the amount of time that Dustin and I have spent talking about it, I'm really excited. That should be good to eat and enjoy and share with the world. To kind of play off what Dustin said, just be comfortable in your cooking. You know, wild game is very specific, and a lot of people tread into it lightly just for the fact that it's it's a precious commodity. And I understand that, just like the next person, just the fact that, hey man, I put a lot of effort into go out there and harvest this animal, and I'm, I won't say intimidated, but... Sometimes I, I question whether or not I want to do anything just out of my comfort zone. Yeah, you don't want to make a mistake on that meat. Yeah, because it's like, oh, it's different. It's not like I can run back to the store and buy another one. Like, it's this is it. I just want to encourage everyone just to just to try new things. I mean, play around with it. We've all eaten burnt meat before, so it's, it's, it's one of those things that you just kind of give it a go. I myself had have, have had successes and failures in the kitchen uh, with wild game, domestic meat, just about any recipe you'd imagine. The frustration level has been high, and it's been like, this is the best thing ever, you know. But you don't know till you try, and just go out there with the confidence just to be like, hey, I'm going to make something that I want to enjoy and, and really showcase this animal for the, the life that lived. Outside of that, I just want to thank everybody for listening. Um, I really appreciate all those that uh, let me know that they listened to the podcast and gave good constructive feedback for us moving forward with it. And as always, our show notes are available online. So each of the recipes we talked about, everything, the links and all that are available on the website where you'll find the link to each of the podcasts. We're on all the different uh, podcast servers now, so you should be able to hear us anywhere. And be sure to hit that like and subscribe button. Give us a rating, five stars, whichever one is the largest. We'd greatly appreciate that. Oh, we're on social media, too. Have been for a while. Harvest in Nature, Instagram, Facebook, the Twitter, all that stuff. Uh, follow us there for our latest and greatest wild game recipe and adventure articles. Thanks. We'll talk to you next time.
through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night, floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest. Me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinners. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.